wouldn't be right of me, first of all, hi, I always forget that part, I'm Matt, um, missions young adult pastor here at Antioch, and I just had the opportunity to travel down to Haiti, not this last week, but the week before I got back, um, tomorrow will be a week ago. And uh, it was kind of a, a last-minute thing, kind of a really random, cool opportunity to travel with World Relief, which is a relief development disaster response organization that we partner with at Antioch. And it, it just wouldn't feel right to me to kind of jump into this message today without saying thank you to all of you guys, because I know last week Ken stood up here and basically told you I was in Haiti dying uh, from an illness. That's kind of the reaction I got. I don't know if it was that bad. Definitely it felt weird to be in like a 95 degree weather um, wearing a sweatshirt and shaking cold with a fever of like 103. That was kind of weird. Um, not how I pictured the tropical thing going. Uh, but I got better. Uh, we got home safe. It took a long time. It was like a, a 22 hour day home like 102 degree fever which was always fun. You know how that is. So um, the people on the plane loved, loved me. Absolutely. I was just a treat. I was a treat coming back from Haiti. So, uh, yeah, just, just thank you. You know, it's all 500 of us probably would have gotten on a plane and gone, but that would just would have been impossible. And so it's an honor to get to go and, and represent kind of this community, kind of this body, and to tell the people in, in, in Haiti who are suffering that we're there with them, and to tell the people that are working hard to do good that uh, we're there to support them with prayer, with money, with anything that we've been given to be able to free them up to do their job better. So thank you guys for that. It means a lot to me, the encouragement to support, all that good stuff. So uh, what I want to do is pray, because Haiti is overwhelming. It's, it's uh, unlike anything I've ever seen. That includes um, a lot of things in Africa, a lot of things in South America, a lot of places I've had the opportunity to go. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. And to process it, to put words to it, is way beyond uh, my pay grade. It's way beyond what I'm able to do. And so uh, I just kind of want to start kind of on that, on that foot this morning. So if you guys would pray with me. Uh, Father, we're all here this morning because um, you prompted something in us, in our hearts. And um, we're all the same this morning. We're all here waiting to hear um, your voice, and so I pray that you would speak to us, that you would bring clarity out of uh, a mess, um, that you would bring um, truth, God, out of, out of illusion, that we'd begin to, to see, that we'd begin to understand that, that what you're doing isn't far off, but what you're doing is right here, and it requires us to sit and to listen and to know who you are. And uh, Father, I, I pray for Haiti. I pray for the people who are hurting. I pray for the people who are there helping. I pray for the church around the world, God, who's uniting around this disaster to make a difference in your name. I pray that we don't grow weary. I pray that we commit to good and that we continue to do good, God. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, you guys might be a little upset with me. I took couple thousand pictures while I was in Haiti, shot a lot of video. I could give you like a, a three-hour, give you like a three-hour long, you know, like slideshow. Like remember when your grandparents came back from the Bahamas when you were kids, sit you on the couch and just click through it the whole time. Like, like we could do that, but I feel like there's a bigger opportunity going on, and that might seem kind of sacrilegious to say there's something bigger going on in the world right now than what's going on in Haiti, but if you just stick with me for a while, um, I want to tell you guys one story, show you a couple pictures to kind of help get the context of what it's like in Port-au-Prince right now. So if you guys don't know, 
I mean, real quick, real quick recap. January 12th at like 4.53 p.m. was a Tuesday. A 7.1 earthquake hits Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of a country called Haiti, which is south of Florida, not too far. It's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the, the earned income of, of the population in Haiti is less than a dollar a day. I mean, it is like middle of Africa poverty in the Western Hemisphere. It's really, really remarkable. And I learned while I was down in Haiti that a 7.1 earthquake that hit San Francisco, I don't remember exactly when, caused 67 deaths. And a 7.1 earthquake that hit Port-au-Prince caused 150,000 deaths. So it's not just an earthquake. I learned this from a world relief expert on the ground there. He told me, earthquakes don't kill people. Buildings fall on people. That kills people. There's a huge difference between a place like San Francisco and a place like Port-au-Prince. The way we build, the way our infrastructure is set up, the way we're able to respond to emergencies, all of those things play a huge part. So to give you guys a little bit of a, of a visual kind of context, because this really very much is a visual story that's going on in Haiti. This... This is a picture that I took at the World Relief Office in Port-au-Prince. I hiked up, back around, um, up this huge pile of, of rubble. And you can see here this guy in the red shirt, and you can't really make him out because they're kind of faded, but there's three guys over here on the right. One's bending over, one you can just see his head. And they have, uh, one guy's got a shovel, and one guy's got a, a sledgehammer with a broken handle. And they're, they're working their way through this rubble. And uh, on the way back down, I got to meet this guy in the red shirt. And so, uh, to give you, <laughs> wow, am I breathing really loud? <laughs> Maybe it's too close. We'll play around with it while we uh, do that. Sorry about that, guys. So, you can kind of get the, the bigger picture, the big perspective here. I'm probably about 30, 35 feet up off of the street. That street, you can see in the distance, is the one running right before us. And so, what I did is, is I brought a, a video clip, and I, I didn't edit it, I did, didn't put music to it, I didn't put cool graphics on it or anything. It's just literally a minute and a half long clip. And what the clip is, you're going to see, is that I'm starting on the street, and I'm following a guy in a bright yellow shirt, because he wants to take me up around the backside to show me the damage to the World Relief Building. So that's basically what it's going to be. It's going to be very much like watching a cops episode because the camera's, camera's really shaky. There's a lot of noise. It's really hectic. You don't know what's going on. But that's basically, I, I just, I feel like it'll be able to say a lot more in a minute and a half than, than I'd be able to. So if we can go ahead and, and cue that up.
So you guys get the idea. Like it's not a it's not a crack in the wall. It's not uh, that building just fell over. It's not a broken window. It's not. I mean, it, it it looks like it got shelled by heavy artillery for five years straight, just day after day after day after day. And the amazing thing is that this earthquake lasted exactly 37 seconds. 37 seconds at 7.1 is a really really long time. And the damage is is extensive, and you can tell. Um, so this guy, I got to meet him, and uh, fortunately, he spoke a little bit of English, and so he was able to tell me a little bit of his story as I was walking back down. I asked him what he was doing, and he said that that building that was that pile of rubble that we walked up was his office building. He rented out the three stories. The top was his office, and he rented out the lower two um, floors, and I felt kind of awkward asking him, but I, you know, I had to. Like, did, did you lose anybody? Is everybody in your family Okay. And he told me this story about how in this building, there were three people underneath us at that moment. Three people they couldn't get out. And one of them was his mom. And two of the people were the people that rented in that facility. But then he told me that his two-year-old daughter was buried there. He told me that the earthquake happened. He wasn't there, but he rushed over there as soon as he could after it occurred. And he knew generally where to look for his daughter. So he got a couple guys together, and for five days, with their bare hands, they dug, and they dug, and they dug, and they found her, and they pulled her out alive after five days. And Woody's story is told, can be told a million different times, with a million different people, with a million different characters, the same thing happening, destruction, death, loss, suffering, all those kinds of things. So, I, I, I mean... It's a it's a hard thing to wrap um, to wrap our mind around why something like this would happen. Um, and this earthquake has has done some really interesting things, uh, in my opinion. It, it's made let me let me see if I can explain this. It's made a lot of things known, so to speak. Um, I imagine, I imagine like this building being here, and then I imagine turning my head or closing my eyes for 37 seconds and looking back, and then it being gone. Like the earthquake made known the power of the earth, if that makes sense. Like everything was there, and then the earth released kind of its power, and then it was gone. So the earth made its its power known, in the same way like the sun makes heat known. Right? It shines and it makes the heat known, and you can feel it. And and we can do the same exact thing as as people. Um, I mean, we make, we make things known, like we complain, <laughs> we're really good at that. We complain, and we, like me on the airplane on the way home, like I complained to make my discomfort known to the flight attendants, to the people around me. Um, you know, I complain to make that known. Uh, we, do, we do other things. We steal, and we make greed known, right? We rob, and we make greed known. We hurt, and we make evil known. Um, so we can do it on the bad side, but we can also make good things known, right? We can... Um, we can bless and we can make generosity known. Like we can give and we can make graciousness known. We can do, oh, we can love, I think is what I want to say. We can love and we can make good known with our action. So something like this happens. It makes known the power of the earth. It makes known suffering. It makes known all these horrible things. And we, basically what we like to do is we like to look at earthquakes and tsunamis and civil wars in the middle of Africa like we're watching a Disney movie. What I mean by that is, is Disney movies always pretty much have the same exact story going on. On this side, there's good, 
there's a hero, and on this side, there's bad, there's a villain, there's, there's evil, and there's this fight. They're fighting usually over a good-looking girl or, uh, you know, some money or a kingdom or things like that. So we have these really two clean, nice, black and white categories. We have good and we have bad. The hero makes good known with everything he does. He fights for what is right. And the the villain, he makes evil known with everything he does. He tries to push back good with with all of his effort. And so it's, it's super simple. It's super simple. But the thing is, Disney... Disney does not tell those stories because that's the way life is. They tell those stories precisely because that's the way life is not. It's the way we wish life was. That's what we want. We want it to be all the way good and all the way bad so we can step back and we can look at it and go, okay, I got my categories. It makes sense. But there's a lot of actual room for gray. And the interesting thing about, like, when you're watching a movie, when you're watching Disney, when you're watching the story of good and known and you have your categories, this is making good known, this is making evil known, and what are we doing watching? Nothing. We're passive. We're the viewer. We're actually entertained by the story. We want the story to go on so that we can be entertained. So really, as they're making good known, as they're making evil known, we're making indifference known. We sit in the middle. We don't engage. We just watch. We passively watch it happen. And so if you take that kind of idea, you drop it onto something like an earthquake, you drop it onto something like suffering, like real human life, real human loss, and you try to work with these categories, if you you take that entertainment model... And you, and you don't engage ever with anything going on, basically what you're going to do is you're going to be indifferent. You're going to be in the middle. You're going to be passive. And what, what do we do with entertainment? What do we always do with entertainment? We critique it. We critique it two thumbs up, half a thumb up, two thumbs down, five stars, four stars, waste my time, you know, worst show ever, best show ever, loved it, going to go watch it 10 times, like, like Avatar, right? Like how many of you have seen Avatar 60 times already? Yep. You, me, you, me and, and you. Yep. You, me, and you too. Yep. Um, this is like a cool movie. So it, it, it entertained me. I didn't have to do anything. I got to sit. I got to be passive. I got to receive it. And then I just got to decide to what level did it please me? To what level was I satisfied with the story, with the characters, with the writing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? That's what we do with entertainment. And so if we have a theology of entertainment, that is, I only like things if they please me, and I don't like things if they don't please me, we're going to end up adopting a theology of pleasantry. What is pleasant? And that's going to be our grid. That's going to be our paradigm for everything. What pleases you? What makes you happy? What satisfies you? Likewise, you turn around. Everything that requires something of you that you don't want to give, you'll push away. Nah, I don't like that. That doesn't fit into my pleasant theology. Like, oh, God loves me. Oh, that's, that's nice. I can handle that. That's pleasant. God wants me to be rich. I can definitely handle that. I can definitely handle that. Uh, but, but when you come over here like, yeah, you know what? God wants you... God wants you to get out of your car and go sit down next to the guy in the media and ask him for money and just ask him his story. That's not as pleasant as I was hoping for. 
So you guys kind of tracking with me now? I think it's kind of this Disney movie theology, this, this theology of, of pleasantry, this theology that um, if, it, if it makes us happy, if it keeps us comfortable, then we're up for it, we're into it, because it makes sense. And so here's, here's the problem with the entertainment model. The entertainment model, if that's what we prescribe to, we'll spend all of our time defending what pleases us rather than defending what pleases God. All of our time, everything will be about us rather than what God is actually doing. Um, we'll make our own comfortable little world, theology of pleasantry, ruling the whole thing. If it's pleasant for me, it's work. If it works. If it's not pleasant for me, then, then we exclude it. Um, here's, here's my really rocking, awesome visual aid for the day. You guys ever, like a kid, you ever go to a museum, and like it's one of those museums where they take really small things and they make them really big so you can like really see them? This is an actual ski pole. This is not like a, this has not been made bigger for the demonstration. This is my ski pole. It's huge. It's massive. It's 52 inches, which is big, 52, something like that. Um, I, f- I figured it would work because we're in Bend and everybody here skis. Um, this, this is not a ski pole, though. This is the bar. This is the bar for everything, the bar we always refer to, like that Avatar movie I mentioned earlier. It raised the bar, right, for movie making. That's what all the critics say. The bar was here. You had to have, like, a certain level of money, a certain level of A-level actors, a certain level of special effects, a certain level of writing, and then you reached, you reached the bar, and, and you were good, and you had a good movie. So Avatar came along. took, like, eight years to make. took, like, $250 million to make. It has this cool 3D technology. So now the bar that was here has now been raised, now, any movie, any movie that wants to be good now has to reach a new bar. It has to employ all of those new technologies, all of those new techniques to make a movie that reaches the bar that Avatar has raised. Does that make sense? You guys know about the bar. We've all talked about the bar before. Like, when I applied for college, some colleges had a bar of admissions, like, way down here, and then some had a bar, like, way up here. I'm like, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. Like, let's talk kneecap-level bar college here. Right? Um, today... Uh, Super Bowl, right? Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, the, the bar for a quarterback was here. Had to be athletic, have had a good arm, had to have a good brain because you had to memorize a humongous playbook. Got to have good feet, got to have strong hands, all those kind of things. Well, Peyton Manning, in my book, raises the bar of a quarterback in the NFL. It's like an offensive coordinator with shoulder pads on. He's amazing. And he's going to win today, so I'm sorry to throw that out there. But we can, we can, we can talk football later if you want. But anyway, so you guys, are, you guys are with me. We all know about the bar. We are, we're all taught. We're all taught that we got to raise the bar. That we got to we got to raise our expectations. We got to raise our standards. That's that's what that's what America does. We're all about um, moving forward. We're all about getting better. We're all about innovating. We're all about progressing um, farther, faster, better, stronger, quicker. All those types of things. So. Here's the deal with you and me and earthquakes and suffering and theology and the bar. We take the idea of the bar into our spiritual life and say, okay, I'm going to have a really high bar. And this bar is actually a reflection of our theology of pleasantry, of what we want, of what's comfortable for us. Um, so a lot of us like really, really, really nice cars, like the bar for, like, the Buick is down here, and, like, the bar for the BMW is, like, way up here, right? So a lot of us, like, 
we're the BMW kind of people. And when we look at the Buick, we're like, yeah, I'm never going to drive a Buick. Like, that's just below my standards. Like, I'm way up here. Um, same thing with clothes and same thing with house and same thing with jobs. Like, I'm not going to deliver pizza. Like, I'm going to run a company. Like, I've got a really high bar for, uh, you know, for my life for all those types of things. So when we take that, when we make it theological, when we, when we take that theology of pleasantry and project it out onto this bar, what happens is we alienate ourselves from God and from other people, Right? If we're, if we're high bar people, we have no room for anything from the ground up to our bar. We're only going to hang out with people that are better, people that are stronger, people that are richer, people that are smarter, people that have a better reputation so that our bar will, in a sense, be raised even higher. And we can hang out with really, really high bar people. And now here's, here's the mystery of the gospel. Jesus shows up at a time when faith and religion and spirituality had a really, really high bar. You want to follow God? There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Go memorize them. Do every single one of them. Get the commentaries. Read those. Memorize those. You've got you to really work hard to get up to this bar of what it means to meet God's standards. Now, the really fascinating thing about the gospel Jesus, who is God, who is beyond the bar, who creates the bar, who is the bar himself, who was there in the beginning when everything was made, who was the logos, the word, the power, the spirit that created everything, there's nothing higher, no bar beyond him. He actually comes down and sets the bar here, himself. I mean, think about that. God himself says, no man, no woman, no matter who they are, no matter what they do, will ever be beneath me. That's a theology of suffering. I'm not going to be elite. I'm not going to be unapproachable. I'm not going to be untouchable. I'm not going to have such high standards that nobody can get to me. Instead, I'm going to willingly lower the bar all the way to the bottom so that everybody has access to me. And what that meant for Jesus was giving his life away for people that wanted to kill him. Think about that. He made his life available to everybody. Me, you, the good guys, the bad guys, Paul, a guy who was killing people in Christ's name, Matthew, a tax collector that nobody wanted to talk to, wasn't beneath Jesus. Even the Romans that strapped him to a cross, that put nails through his hands, that killed him, even then he cries out, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Even now, even with this, they are not beneath my bar. They are not beneath God's grace. As long as we have the bar up here, with the theology of pleasantry. We're going to be so far removed from what God is trying to do through Christ, through his spirit, through the church. Because if this is what we're worried about, the fights that you and I are going to fight, the reasons we're going to be tired is because we're defending what we want. We're holding on to our right to critique the entertainment. 
So what happens when we make indifference known with our life, which is what this bar does, because it's all about us, it makes indifference known. It's not good, it's not evil. And when we hold on to indifference, it's really amazing. We can say, you know what? All the problems in the world are because of evil, and all of the good people actually aren't good enough, because if they were good enough, they'd be doing something about all this evil. It's not up to me. I have no role to play in this story. That's what happens when we have a bar up here. But what we don't recognize is that God is down here, Jesus is down here, the Spirit of God is down here, and this is where Paul writes most of his letters from the New Testament from. In prison, hungry, shipwrecked, chained to Roman guards, starving to death, freezing cold in a jail cell. And this is what he says in Galatians 6.9. Galatians 6.9, he's talking to the church of Corinth who is trying to figure out what this means. What does it mean to go from this type of theology of pleasantry to have this super high bar, to put this burden on people to say, if you want to know God, you've got to reach up to this. But Jesus brings it all the way down. And Paul is saying, that transition is not easy. Yeah, guys, you've got to hear me on this. Like, <laughs> you're going to go home and be like, yeah, the pastor said have a low bar. <laughs> have low standards. Sweet. No. <laughs> the grace model, the grace model opposed to the legalistic model requires so much more. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6 9, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good, Church of Corinth. Do not grow weary, Antioch. Because it's not easy work. It's not easy to be opposing culture. It's not easy to look at all of this illusionary stuff, to take everything we're taught to believe and to follow and to reverse it, to say, you know what? It's actually not about me. It's actually about God. And it's actually about what God is doing. And I actually have the opportunity to reverse this high bar into a low bar and say, you know what? I'm going to wear myself out doing good. And in the context of that letter in Galatians 6, Paul's talking about reaping what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. If you, if, if, you, if you sow a high bar, if you sow a bar that reflects a theology of pleasantry, you're going to get that. You're going to get exactly what you want. But that want is absolutely opposite of what God wants from you and what he wants to give to you, and what he wants to give to the world. So Paul says, don't grow weary of doing that. Don't grow weary of giving your life away. Don't grow weary of being exhausted. Don't grow weary of making that transition. Don't grow weary of getting dirty. Don't grow weary of learning people's names and their stories. Don't grow weary of going to Haiti or Africa or India or anywhere in the world where there is hurting and suffering because that's where I am. So if we want to sit on our high bar and our pedestal and sing our songs and, and just say, yeah, God's good, blah, 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 and we never actually get down here to where God is moving to this low bar where we are beneath everybody, where we actually recognize everybody, where we see everybody, where people are hurting, where people are suffering, where people are wondering, literally crying out, what does the gospel have to offer to me here for Woody on a, on a pile of rubble standing 30 feet of concrete atop his mom and two people that he was friends with what, what does the gospel have to offer there what's the power 
of the gospel at that moment, at a time like this, if, if the gospel to us is just you get what you want and you get to be entertained and it's really cool, I've got nothing to tell Woody. I've got nothing to give any of you. I've got nothing to give anybody who's hurting or who's wondering, is there good in the world? I've got nothing. But that's the power of the gospel. At a time like this, Sammy Ma, who's the um, president of World Relief, we showed a video of him a couple weeks ago. And at the very end of the video, it was a video about Haiti. He said, this just might be the church's finest hour. He said, I believe this could be the church's finest hour. Now, how does that, what does that mean? How is that possible? That when the church actually comes together, when the church, and, and, and I'm not speaking abstractly here, I'm talking like you and me. I'm talking you and me and the person next to you and the, the people at church down the street today and the people in China and the people in India and the people in Haiti right now, like when the church comes together around a great need, and that's, that's the amazing and tangible thing about disasters is it reveals how fragile we are. And for a moment, we all remember how fragile humanity is and we want to do something about it and eventually it goes away. But for, for a minute, all eyes are turned to the needy. All eyes are turned to the hurting. All eyes are turned away from the differences that keep us far away from each other and it actually points us to what we have in common, which is that we're all here doing our best with what we've been given. Some of us have been given more. Some of us have been given less. This could be the church's finest hour. A need like this, the church can show up. And the church can say, you know what we have to offer? You know what God is doing? God is taking us and he's making us low. He's taking our resources, our finances, and he's making them low. He's taking our time and he's making them low because of his grace. Because no one in here is above God. Because God made himself lower than us and gave his life to us. We have the opportunity to do the same exact thing. That's missions. That's justice. That's why we believe that here at Antioch. We don't want to be a church that looks good on the outside, does all the right things, that has a really high bar, really high standards, really high expectations. A church, a gathering of people that doesn't get the theology of suffering is a church that's going to be alienated from what God is doing around the world. So Paul says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary, church. You're going to get what you sow. You're going to get back what you give. And if you give a high bar, you're going to get exactly what you want. If you give a low bar, you're going to get exactly what Paul talks about. I think it's, um, what is that, Second. First, Second Corinthians, you know, I'm crushed, I'm, um, I'm worn out, I'm perplexed, but I'm not destroyed. Um, I'm, I'm attacked all day long, but I remain. Um, the exterior, the outside of me is literally wasting away. I'm literally exhausted. I'm literally <laughs> overwhelmed. I'm literally worn out with doing good. But on the inside, I'm made new every day. I'm made new every day because the strength God gives me, I take and I give to somebody else who needs it. And the next day, I do the same exact thing because my bar is way down here in the dirt because that's what grace demands of us. 
That's what Jesus does for us. And that's what he says, if you want to love me, if you want to follow me, put your life into the dirt, lower your bar, turn your eyes off your own theology of pleasantry from your own expectations of, of luxury and all these kinds of things and get what I'm doing here. And the way Paul describes this in the 2 Corinthians 5 is he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Jesus came to do, to reconcile. Do you guys know what that means? It means to restore a relationship that has been broken. That is not easy work. That is not easy work. It's not going to happen in a day or you know, seven steps or you know, in one conversation. It's hard work. It's going to wear you out kind of work. This is hard manual labor, heartbreaking kind of work. So Paul is screaming to the church at the top of his lungs, don't give up. Don't grow weary with doing good because if you stop doing good now, who is going to do good? I mean, that's what Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. He looks out at the world and he goes, I don't get it. It's all meaningless. All the systems that are supposed to be for good are corrupted. And all the ones that are, that are, are meant for evil are, are thriving. And we work hard every day, day after day, day in, year in, year out. And what do we do? We get nothing. We die. We're dust. From dust to dust. What's the point? Paul's saying, look, while you're here, you have the opportunity because of God. Because Jesus reconciling the whole world to himself, me, you, the nations, the earth, the sand, the trees, everybody alive, because God is doing that, he's invited us into it. He's made us ambassadors in his kingdom, and he says, you can do what I have done. And here's the thing, if, if, if we're trying to do it on our own, if we're trying to say, okay, yeah, this makes sense, and I'm going to take my theology and, and make it this kind of theology of suffering and do it out of my own strength, we're missing the point. That doesn't happen on your own. So we always talk about our cause and, and what's our cause and, and where are we going and, and what are we doing. I got to tell you guys, the cause is God. It's Him. The reason why we go to Congo, the reason why we go to Haiti, the reason why in three weeks we're going to have a local missions fair with like 25 organizations out there for you guys to get plugged into is because God is calling us to take this high bar, to transform it into a low bar, to get dirty with life, to take what he's given us to help others come back to life, to be weary with doing good. To be weary with doing good. Not to be weary fighting our little fights. Fighting our fights of entertainment, protecting what pleases us, excluding what doesn't please us. I'm saying, you know what, with God, this is possible. And here's here's kind of what here's kind of what I mean. First Corinthians one twenty five. Paul just starts throwing out these these things all throughout First Corinthians. And he says this God's weakness is greater than my strength. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, he says almost the same thing. When I am weak, he is strong. When I am weak, God is strong. So when you are weary with doing good, what are you making known? Like that's the question we started with. What do you make known? Is it evil? Is it good? Is it indifference? When you're weary with good, what do you make known? And the answer is it's God's power. It's God's strength. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about we have this treasure, which is Christ, which is who he is, and we store it in us, and we are jars of clay. We are nothing pretty to look at. You know, we're not going to stop any parades. We're not going to turn any heads. But the thing inside, the Spirit of God, that reconciled truth, that relationship with God, now that's where the power is. That's where the power is. 
And as long as we're trying to reach this bar on our own accord, on our own strength, we're going to be alienated from what God is doing because what God is doing is making us into new creations. He's undoing that entire type of thinking, that entire type of existence, and he's reestablishing it with himself, with his strength, with his power. So Paul actually says, and it's absolutely backwards, but when I am weak, God does more strong things in me. That when I am impoverished, God's spirit is rich in my soul. And we can actually minister out of our poverty. We can embrace empty. We can embrace tired. We can embrace worn out. And when we do, we have these really simple, profound, beautiful prayers like, God, help me. Like, Lord, strengthen me. God, less of me and more of you. Because I've seen more of me. And more of me is this high bar that's all about me. So deconstruct that, God, and, and, and put in yourself. Let me be that ugly, mangled jar of clay with your spirit inside working. And I know what you guys are all thinking. This doesn't sound fashionable. This doesn't sound sexy. This, you know, this, this doesn't look like Anderson Cooper strutting through Haiti with his big old buff biceps and his tight black, you know, $400 designer shirt, like, and his sparkling blue eyes. Like, yeah, I noticed he has blue eyes. Okay, it's not that weird. <laughs> like, it's not that image. It's not on TV. It's not streamed into everybody's bedroom at night so they can go, wow, what a great guy. What a great guy. Look at what he's doing. Look at all the good he's doing. No, that's not the way it works. It's not all that glamorous. Um, that's one thing I learned while I was in Haiti. I mean, relearned over and over and over. Spent, I spent a lot of time with this guy named Francesco. And he's Italian, 100% Italian blood, but he grew up in the States. And uh, he's a disaster response coordinator for World Relief. His, two his one big project is in Darfur, which is in Sudan, which is one of the most hostile places on the planet. And driving around Haiti, it was interesting to hear him say, um, that he'd never seen anything like it. That was the worst environment he'd ever been in. Um, and, and his role every day was to go to the World Food Program, which is part of the UN, negotiate with them how much rations he could get so he could take the food, truck it like five miles across down to a church where there were a thousand people waiting to receive rations for the day. So that, that's his job. Like he's feeding, feeding people. And he speaks French. And, uh, but he doesn't speak Creole, so he's kind of speaking the more educated language there. And, and he's working with all these truck drivers that are like third grade educated. They speak Creole and maybe a little bit of French. And the, the only object, the only object is to get three trucks full of rice four miles across town. That's it. That's the game plan. <laughs> get the rice from point A to point B so people can eat. And these truck drivers managed to screw it up for like three and a half hours straight. Three and a half hours straight, we're sitting there waiting, 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 waiting. Then the trucks come and drive by the wrong way, so we have to like literally chase them in the car down the road, and he's screaming out the window. He's Italian, right? But he's speaking French, and we're in Hades. This is a classic moment. Just screaming, what you know that Italian kind of, how they do that thing? And, um, and he gets their attention, everybody's screaming and arguing and, and all this stuff, and finally we all get our convoy like lined up, we're going the right way um, towards the church, and the first truck in the convoy, and this truck is over, overloaded probably by about, I don't know, two or three tons it seems like, 
and because um, the guys try to make as much money as possible. Uh, first truck in the convoy, we're like literally 60 yards from the gate of the World Food Program. He drives straight into the pothole the size of this stage, and the truck, the back tire pops in, the front tire pops up, and then rice just dumps out of the truck. And, and no, it's in bags, right? It's not just like it's just out in the open. It's in bags. And so bags of rice are just piling off here. And so he sees it happen in the rearview mirror, slams on the brake, probably an expletive in Italian. I'm not sure at that point, but it, it, he was upset, upset, because people are hungry. And his job is to get him food, and these guys are wasting time. So after this, like, three-and-a-half-hour-long ordeal, he's bright red, he's sweating. <laughs> I've got the camera on him the whole time, which didn't make him happy. And uh, he gets back into the car, he slams the door, he, like, hits the steering wheel, and he looks up, and he just, he goes, deep breath. He looks over at me and he says, you know what? For all the reasons to be tired, for all the reasons to be upset, for all the reasons to be this exhausted, I get to feed 20,000 people today. That's worth it. That's worth it. That's worth these guys being idiots. It's worth, it's worth the waste of time. It's worth the stress. It's worth the 23-hour days, two weeks in a row. It's worth it. And that that perspective shift at that moment for him, revealing the motivation for why he does what he does. And you and I probably in our lifetime aren't going to get the chance to feed 20,000 people in one day who are suffering from a hurricane. But here's the other little pearl of wisdom I picked up while I was there. Paul Redman, who's the actual director of disaster response for World Relief, he operates programs in Congo, Sudan, and now Haiti. After four or five days of being there, seeing what they're doing, we met for dinner, and this guy is exhausted. <laughs> he's worn out. And he's operating. I mean, he's, he's overseeing so many little different things. In disaster response, it doesn't matter how good your plan is. Like, there is no plan. You wake up every day, and you figure out how to get water to people. You figure out how to get food to people, and it's just madness. You've got to be really crafty. You've got to be really clever. You've got to be really quick at thinking on your feet, and that gets exhausting after a while. So I'm asking Paul. I said, Paul, just give me the rundown, man. How is it going? And he just laughed at me. He's like, well, it's going slow. It's one step at a time. Then he takes a bite, and I'm like, okay, that was cool. Conversation over. He looks back at me, and he says, you know what? I guess if you want to help a million people, you've got to start by helping one. And that's true. It's absolutely true. You want to help a, a million, you've got to start with one. You want to be the kind of person that doesn't have this high standard, this theology of pleasantry, but the kind of person, the theology of, of suffering that meets people, that knows who they are, that knows their pain, that is willing to help you got to start with one. you got to start with one, and you actually have to look. You actually have to look into their life. That's what Stephen Bowman told me, Senior Vice President of World Relief. I talked to him for 38 seconds. I landed, got off the plane. He came up, gave me a hug, told me one thing, got on the plane and left. He said, just, just look. Look into people's lives because everybody lost somebody. Everybody's hurting. And he's right. When you look, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we, we, we can do something, church. 
we can do something because God has done something, and because God is doing something. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll end with this story um, that helps wrap up this picture. In Luke 10, Jesus tells a famous story of the Good Samaritan, right? You guys all know it? The Good Samaritan. Um, guy on his way into town, beat up, robbed, thrown in the ditch, left for dead. Two guys come by. One's a priest, one is a Levite. It sounds like a bad joke. Uh, they come by. Two guys with really high bars. Two guys with really high bars of what it means to be religious. Can't touch him, can't talk to him, can't help him, so they pass on. Third guy, Samaritan, comes through. And he's got a really low bar. And you know why? Because he's been oppressed his whole life because of his ethnicity. And because he knows what it means to suffer, he can recognize suffering in somebody else. And he's moved. Jesus said in this story, the man had compassion on him. Compassion is a great word. Compassion comes from the Latin word patria, which means to suffer. Passion means to suffer. C-O-M means with, to suffer with somebody. To be compassionate people, to be a compassionate person means you come alongside, you bear the burden of somebody who's hurting, and you carry it with them. You take them to the end, you pay for them to be, to be healed by the doctor. You do whatever you can with what you've got. That's what compassion means. That's the difference between a high bar and a low bar. So as, as, as counterintuitive as it is, I'll just leave you guys with that. Jesus lowered the bar. <laughs> he lowered the bar and he upped the stakes. He lowered the bar and he says, you can't do this without me. That's the whole point. Trying to follow the law, trying to be religious. You can't do this without my spirit inside of you, so are you available to the spirit of God? And what do you make known? Is it good? Is it evil? Is it nothing? Is it indifference? Is it justice? Is it injustice? I mean, what kind of people are we? What do we do when an earthquake breaks out like this? What do we do when people in Bend are, are freezing on the street corners at 3 o'clock in the morning? What do we do? What does the gospel have to say about that? And I, I think the answer, and I'll have the band come back up. I know they're going to play a couple songs. I think the answer is, what does the gospel have to say about this? Is It doesn't have a whole lot to say. But it has a whole lot to make known. If that makes sense. It has a whole lot to make known by doing it by being it, by being love, by being truth, by being justice, by being missions, by being all those kind of things. The band can come back up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does the gospel have to say about that? Not a whole lot, but it has a lot to make known. Um, and here, here's a parting thought as they get set up. Pay attention to what kind of prayers you pray. If you want to know like where you land on the map, do I make good known? Do I make evil known? Am I, do I make indifference known? Am I really wearing myself out for good? Like do I really need to be encouraged not to give up because this really is that hard? Like pay attention to what kind of prayers you pray. Because I think the more exhausted we get, the more we wear ourselves out for good, the simpler our prayers become. And all we're ever going to pray is what Jesus tells us to pray in Matthew 6 that God would just help his kingdom break forth into this world, that he would take care of the little needs that we have, that he would protect us from ourselves and from the evil things in the world, and that we would be part, part
part of the story that makes known his love, that makes known his truth, that makes known his goodness. So that's the opportunity we have. It includes Haiti, it includes Africa, it includes Ben, it includes our families. That's the opportunity. Pay attention to what you pray. And God will transform us. God, that's what we ask for. That's what we hope for. That's what we pray for.